as a doctor, what keeps me up at night is thinking what it's going to be like if, and it's a big if, if we get into a situation where we have um, overwhelming numbers of critically ill people whose needs cannot be met. Dr. Ruth Bergren is an infectious diseases expert. She spent large portions of her life in situations where medical help could not meet demand. She was living in New Orleans, working at Charity Hospital in the HIV ward when Hurricane Katrina hit, and she spent weeks treating the sick and the uninsured and those who were homeless before the storm and who became homeless because of the storm. Now, a new calamity has stormed our shores. A public health hurricane, COVID-19, and supply is not ready to meet demand. You, you really don't want to have to get out that algorithm Um, If you don't have to, the best way to avoid it is to prevent that surge of cases. It is worth striving for. Let's strive to not have a big peak all at once. Right there, Dr. Berggren is talking about flattening the curve, a message we hear every day on TV. But it's the only way hospitals can hope to keep up with so many patients as the horrors of this new virus become a reality in intensive care units. To be in an ICU where you're having to take care of critically ill people that were just fine two weeks ago and losing people in, in sudden and unexpected ways, uh, that makes you realize that this is for real. This is not an invented monster. This is something that's actually killing people and it can be prevented. So this is something a lot of people are talking about right now. Pretty soon hospitals won't have enough critical life-saving equipment like ventilators for their patients, what then? It could look like, um, you know, somebody who is 30 years old and has no other underlying problems, young and healthy, coming into the emergency room at the same time as somebody who's 90 and both of them need a ventilator. And there's a doctor standing there who has to decide who gets that ventilator. And that's an agonizing thing. Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, breathing, and the most critical device in the fight for life against coronavirus, the ventilator. Okay, let's start. Take a deep breath, as deep as you can. Fill your lungs with air. Good, let it out. Feels good, right? All that oxygen-rich blood rushing to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and toes, and filling all of your organs with life-giving nourishment. For every soul on this good earth, breath is life. Take a deep, cleansing breath. Good. Now imagine you try to breathe, and you can't. When we're talking about people who die of COVID-19, this is what we're talking about. The virus can mercilessly attack the lungs, leaving people unable to breathe on their own. You need help. You need a machine that will help you breathe. You need a ventilator. But how does a person with COVID go from healthy lungs to needing a breathing machine? Well, let's find out. 
So when I was a kid back in the 70s, our school principal would occasionally take us out of class for a little treat. We'd line up in single file and march through the auditorium to watch a movie. It was usually a pretty old movie, but we didn't care. We'd hold our collective breath in eager anticipation as a film was loaded onto the projector. At one time, I remember this clearly, we were taken on a fantastic voyage. Actually entering inside the human body. Inside a tiny ship, inside the body. That's where I'd like to take you now, inside your lungs. UT Health San Antonio pulmonologist Dr. Anoop Nambiar will take us on this journey. Okay, so where are you right now? So I'm currently at home. I'm staying away from a lot of other people. That makes sense. Practicing social distancing. That's the goal, right? So for most of us, most of the time, our lungs work without us even noticing. Obviously, we don't have to think to breathe. It just happens. But sometimes pathogens get into our lungs, like viruses, and our immune system gets to work. So basically, um, whenever there's an infection in the lungs, the body's natural response is to not only attack that infection, but contain it. The body swarms the infection with white blood cells. If all goes according to plan, they swallow up the virus whole and they just dismantle it. The end. But oftentimes what happens is that if that initial reaction to attack that infection is not as efficient as we let the immune system goes in overdrive, that leads to a lot of other complications. See, our lungs, they're not one big balloon full of air like you might imagine. They're actually a bunch of little balloons, like like a bunch of grapes on a vine. Now, these little balloons are small air sacs. That's where oxygen gets from the lungs into the blood, and the oxygenated blood is then pumped out to the rest of the body, that good nourishing feeling you get. Well, when coronavirus invades the lungs, inflammation from the virus causes fluid and dead white blood cells to fill those small air sacs, those grapes, deep in the lungs. So initially, the virus may only affect a small part of the lungs, and the rest of the lungs, they still work. But this coronavirus, it's not just really good at spreading from one person to another. It's really good at spreading inside the lungs, too. And as more air sacs are affected, the grapes, you start to have real problems. Respiratory therapists and respiratory care as a field focuses on taking care of patients with heart and lung problems. Uh, They spend a lot of time uh, taking care of patients receiving mechanical ventilation. That's respiratory therapist Dr. David Shelley. The simplest way to look at it is inflammation of the lung tissue. And and as it gets worse, it impairs oxygen movement from the uh, airways to the air sacs to the, the blood. And you start to get what's called hypoxemia or low oxygen in the blood. What does that feel like? Air hunger when you feel like you can't get enough air. You start to breathe rapidly. Oxygen levels in the blood drop. So what does that look like from the inside? Well, the grapes start to fill with fluid. This is beyond pneumonia. This is acute respiratory distress syndrome. Before COVID, people with ARDS were in grave danger. Up to half of them, by some estimates, would die. All patients with ARDS need help getting oxygen. Many of them will need help breathing. They will need a device you're hearing a lot about these days, a device that right now is saving countless lives. They'll need a ventilator. 
A ventilator is basically a device to breathe for patients. And so essentially we're blowing air into the patient's lungs and then we're taking the, the pressure off to let the patient exhale. They're pretty complicated pieces of equipment. They let you determine exactly how often a patient needs to breathe and how much air they need in each breath. Ventilators have come a long way. People have been fussing with some form of mechanical ventilation since 1929 when they invented the iron lung. You may have heard about the iron lung or even seen pictures of them. Junior, the man in the iron lung, sees his daughter for the first time. They're giant tubes made of steel, and people would lie down in them with just their heads sticking out. The iron lung was very popular in the 30s and then in the early portions of the polio epidemics. So this is a tank respirator, and it helped polio patients who'd suffered muscle paralysis breathe until they got their strength back. But it was not at all an elegant solution. So over time, ventilators improved. They're still specialized machines with dozens of parts, and they're really expensive, and most hospitals only have a few. Ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. I didn't know what they were a few weeks ago. I know too much about ventilators now. We're still shopping for ventilators all across uh, the country. We need more. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has been raising the alarm about ventilators for weeks. And there's a federal stockpile of ventilators, which President Trump says comprises 10,000 machines. Even though we have the 10, or almost the 10,000, we're also taking from areas that won't The information from the federal government about how many ventilators are in the strategic national stockpile and how states can access them has been, well, inconsistent. President Trump's message on the severity of the ventilator shortage has also been inconsistent. Here he is on April 4th. I mean, it could be you have shortages, and it could also be that you have some that have way overestimated the number of ventilators they need. Meantime, big manufacturing companies in the U.S. have said they'll start making ventilators. How many and when is also unclear. So it's hard to know exactly how bad the shortage in ventilators will be for cities that haven't been hit by the worst of the pandemic yet. Here in Texas, where we're still bracing for the surge, the state government has not said how many ventilators they have on hand. And when I reached out to the person in charge of the Regional Medical Emergency Operations Center for a huge hunk of South Texas, at the time of this recording, he hasn't yet responded. In the face of all this uncertainty about whether there will be enough ventilators for those who will need them, Americans stuck at home want to do something. Roberto Trevino is a councilman for the downtown District 1. Uh, He's been in office for, I want to say, six years. He's an architect in town. He has a firm, or he had a firm. Our technology reporter here in San Antonio, Paul Flav, talked to some people who felt compelled to do something, so they ended up inventing something. First phone call I had was with Stephen Quintanilla at 10 p.m. at night, brainstormed the following They started really working hard on what they thought could be an alternative to to some of these ventilators. These, it's, it's a low-cost, easy-to-deploy ventilator system that they designed themselves. And uh, really started working on prototypes on Wednesday. Uh, yesterday... I actually, I drew up the drawings. Could you describe it to me? Yeah, I mean, it's not its not what you would think of as a hospital ventilator. It's like a manual ventilator system, only automated. Any, 
EMS show you've seen with an ambulance that the guy's pumping the, the big bag into somebody. This is basically that, only it's automated. Well, MIT actually provided all the inspiration, but this is a, its own design. It's a, a design that came out in 2010, but no, no drawings or specs were given. But it was enough to, to at least pose the big question, which is, well, why, why haven't we actually done this before? So then, Trevino reached out to some people with the actual machines and materials he'd need to make this thing. So, Paul, will you tell me about the guys at Can Opener Labs? Yeah, it's Drew Plissett and Dale Bracey. It's kind of a in a commercial light industrial area. It's a bunch of big machines from metal cutters and like uh, CNCs to 3D printers. And they help companies, small companies, do prototypes. They basically stopped everything that they were doing to tackle this because they thought it was a worthy project. And it is really not a replacement for a hospital ventilator. It is an emergency situation. We have no other choice kind of a device. Right. So they can't actually manufacture an entire ventilator, but they do have all these machines and this very particular set of skills. They've seen this problem and they want to help. It's not just these guys. It's This is an effort across the country. A lot of people are putting out designs for these kinds of things in expectation of worst case scenarios. You mentioned to me that one of the founders of the lab that helped make this prototype, Dale Bracey, mentioned that broader movement to you. And I view this as part of a much bigger effort, at least in our space, the maker movement, and all the people that are doing all these different open source projects. You got you got the ventilators, you have respirators, you have face shields, you have surgical masks, you have all these people doing all these different things, and we're trying to get the community together and rally around it, right? This is an emergency crisis situation. I mean, it's, it's like being out in the battlefield and having a bullet wound and doing surgery right there in the middle of the mud, you know? So it's, I hate to use a war analogy because other people are using stupid war analogies, but that's really what it is, right? Like, it's... Uh, So this feeling, this feeling of uh, helplessness and powerlessness has obviously spurred a lot of people to start sort of MacGyvering their own solutions to the many shortages we're facing. You just have to look on YouTube for tutorials on how to make your own face mask. Today's video, we're going to make this 10 minute face mask. I'm going to show you how to make a DIY face mask in under five minutes. For you're going to place your elastic inside the corner. So now the corner of the... Um, definitely check your area and see if your hospitals are asking for people to hand make these. It's a great way for you to give back to your community. Or hand sanitizer. Now the two ingredients that you need are some aloe, uh, just some aloe gel, and this will bind the... Alcohol. And it doesn't stop there. In the last few weeks, there's been this idea going around that we can take one single ventilator and modify the tubing that comes out of it with basically pieces that come from like the hardware store to pump air into two patients instead of just one. You can find videos of doctors and nurses explaining just how to do this in a pinch. And on this YouTube, I'd like to show you how to modify one ventilator to ventilate two or four patients simultaneously. Right now, even state and local governments have adopted this sort of DIY attitude. Governor Andrew Cuomo expressed an interest in this idea in late March. We're going so far as to trying an experimental procedure where we split the ventilator. We use one ventilator for two patients. It's difficult to perform. It's experimental. But at this point, we have no alternative, so we're working on this. And on Monday, April 6th, Cuomo said they've reached capacity 
and they are splitting ventilators between patients. We're beyond capacity. We are into the plan B, C, D. We're into splitting ventilators, turning two into one with two sets of tubes. I got it. I won't shake your hand, but it's so great seeing you. Recently, I visited the command center in Texas, where medical experts are organizing the emergency response to the virus for a 22-county region of South Texas. Fire command staff, police department, Metro Health obviously is one of the main agencies, and then the regional medical operations. This is Eric Epley. He runs the Emergency Medical Operations Center. So tell me what I'm looking at up here, starting with, it looks like, satellite map of San Antonio. So one of them is rain. Right, that's really high high tech. That's radar. <laughs> um, the other one is uh, our current count in Bear County, and then the of course the ventilator shortage map. is heavy on everyone's mind. There, there are additional orders for that have been placed for um, ventilators. We have um, some strategies that have come out of the West Coast where they can utilize ventilators in some uh, innovative ways. From his perspective, splitting ventilators is definitely on the table. Maybe even for a couple of patients at a time. I mean, there's some really good videos if you want to go look on YouTube, some of the healthcare systems that have done innovative ways to do that. So I think we're in uncharted uncharted territory. So I ran this idea past Dr. David Shelley, the respiratory therapist we heard from earlier. He co-authored a textbook about how to use ventilators. Well, I would say that's a real bad idea. Now, some people might disagree with me, but we're dealing with ARDS patients. We're not dealing with your garden variety ventilator situation where the patients have relatively normal lungs, but we need to breathe for them for some other reason. You can't make individual adjustments for a patient if there's two or more patients on the same ventilator. You just can't do it. And you can't monitor effectively when there's two patients on the same ventilator, so you don't know what's going on with each patient individually. Shelley is not alone in this opinion. Recently, several large national organizations of respiratory specialists, basically the nation's smartest lung doctors, put out a joint statement that just said, do not try to split one ventilator among several patients. Paul, our tech reporter, has heard about this idea too. Well, it's funny you bring up the the splitting ventilators because I talked to the chief innovation officer of the city of Anchorage who's been coordinating their efforts. His name's Brendan Babb. He said they spent a couple days trying to figure out how to make the tubing that they would use for that only to find out when they talked to a respiratory specialist that they would never do that. This particular respiratory specialist said you would basically have to have people breathing at the exact same rate, which is never the case. So it's like... They wasted all this time. And that's been, when you talk to these makers, like that's kind of been the big obstacle is many of them aren't medically informed. This is the big problem with lots of well-intentioned people designing solutions so quickly. I mean, yeah, the ventilator is interesting. The masks, the N95 masks are interesting, but it's not clear if any of this will be used by these hospitals. Also, and this may be the more crucial point, Dr. Shelley says, with all this talk about the shortage in ventilators, we're not even focusing on the real problem. I think the bigger problem is having enough well-trained staff, particularly respiratory therapists, to set up, monitor, and care for these patients. Most nurses and most physicians are not trained to set up a ventilator. They don't know how to set one up, and they don't know how to adjust one 
uh, and monitor one. So that's what I'm more worried about. It's not so much running out of ventilators, but running out of personnel that are able to operate the ventilators safely and effectively. The single biggest thing that is going to make a difference is folks uh, following directions and staying home because we do have the opportunity a little bit uh, to get ahead of the surge, particularly in Texas. We get ahead by going nowhere, by staying home. We flatten the curve. I spend a lot of my time thinking about the sickest COVID patients, those with acute respiratory distress syndrome, those who will need the ventilators. I've been thinking about them and their fight to breathe because I was born in respiratory distress. I had the kind of respiratory distress syndrome that only newborns get, particularly preemies like I was. Back then, they didn't have a lot of tools to help babies who were born in respiratory distress. So my late father used to tell the story that when I was born, my doctor said that if somehow I found the strength to cry, I might live. My dad said they put me in an incubator and he waited and he listened and he hoped. Maybe he prayed. He waited a day, then two. Then on the third day, the story goes, I managed a tiny cry. My dad told me then he knew I would live. He would jokingly say that after that first cry, I never shut up and here I am talking to you. But this is the thing that I think about all the time since COVID started attacking lungs on the other side of the planet just a few months ago. Not only are these people in respiratory distress, struggling to breathe on their own, some may get a ventilator, some, some may not. But because they have an infectious disease, they're fighting for those tiny breaths alone. No fathers or mothers or partners or children sitting beside them, trying to push breath into their lungs with just the power of their love. No one to hold their hands. No one to pray. They'll find the strength to cry. To live. This is what keeps me up at night. People fighting to breathe alone. People fighting to live with no help. Flatten the curve, y'all. And tell us what keeps you up at night or ask us questions about coronavirus for which we might be able to get the answers. Or if you just want to check in and tell us how you're doing, we want to know. Email us at petridish at tpr.org. That's Petri, spelled like my name, P-E-T-R-I-E. This podcast is produced by Ben Henry and edited by Fernanda Camarena. Special thanks this week to Paul Flav. Our news director is Dan Katz. We're a production of Texas Public Radio.